This is the Open School of Business, the podcast dedicated to success by delivering insightful conversations with business experts from different walks of life. Here's your host, Anaru Musakwa, entrepreneur and a project management professional. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please leave your comments and questions, rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe. Let's begin. Hello, welcome to the podcast again. Today, I am extremely honored to have a conversation with Professor Lex McCusker. We would like to talk about entrepreneurship, success, and collaboration today. Uh, Lex is a director of in, uh, student entrepreneurship programs at the George Washington University. Uh, he's a mentor at Accelerate DC, and he has mentored us over the course of startups and lectured on innovation and entrepreneurship for over 10 years. He also served as the dean at the School of Technology Management at Stevens Institute of Technology in Hoboken, New Jersey from 2006 to 2009. Prior to joining Stevens Institute, Dr. McCusker worked for 23 years at AT&T and Bell Laboratories in the area of software development, uh, professional technology uh, services, technology licensing, and entrepreneurship. He was CEO at the AT&T tech-to-speech startup called Natural Voices. Lex holds a doctorate degree in experimental psychology from the University of Texas at Austin and bachelor's degree in psychology from Dartmouth College. Welcome, Lex. Thank you. Nice to be here. Well, first of all, I would like to start our conversation about your journey from being a psychology major at the university into switching to business world and technology. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? <laughs> it was mostly out of necessity. I was a uh, postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Chicago um, when I met a recruiter from Bell Labs who uh, came looking for talent to work on uh, issues of human-computer interaction. So this was back in 1980 um, when Bell Labs was very interested in uh, how people would interact with computers and they were hiring uh, psychologists uh, from all from all the leading universities in the world. And at the time, my wife was expecting, and uh, the opportunity to work at Bell Labs was uh, was very attractive. And so I jumped from academia into industry. I see, and that's great because, I, in my view, it sounds a lot like someone who would design UI UX these days for software development. <laughs> was it similar? Yes, uh, but don't don't laugh at me. But in in 1980, it was actually an important question as to whether or not people could use computers and talk on the telephone at the same time. I was mm-hmm. AT&T at that time was the telephone company. There were one million employees, and I got involved in an organization that was automating one of the business functions, the customer service reps, and it was very important to. Uh, manage the contact time, the amount of time that the, the folks had on the phone with customers. And, and again, this is a, a Bell System scale event, so there were mm-hmm. 35,000 of these uh, employees around the country. Uh, the records could be, at that time, could be easily automated. They could be put into, uh, into computers. Mm-hmm. But the interaction with the computer and the person and the thought that somebody you know, could do that while talking on the phone and was an open question, and so right. we were hired to optimize that 
uh, user experience. I see, uh, and it's great because you're just talking about them uh, hiring you for a niche specific task mm -hmm. and you uh, then leading the whole new unit and the startup called the Natural uh, Voices. It, it's incredible, like I'm sure it was a long journey but we would like to hear all about it. Well, uh, again it was, it, uh, this is before divestiture so I, AT&T was a marvelous place to work. Uh, it probably still is, I, I, I'm out of touch, I have to confess. Um, and at and encouraged people to take on new skills and opportunities. And so um, I moved from the uh, human computer interface, the, the human factors staff, uh, into systems engineering and then into uh, various business development opportunities. And not surprisingly, AT&T and Bell Labs was developing lots and lots of technologies, some of which didn't have a ready home in the, in the company. And so when, when I was there, the, uh, the company started up a, a ventures wing, so they took some of these technologies and, and started to spin them out into, into startups, and some of them stayed in the company, some of them actually were spun out into, into startups. And I always enjoyed that kind of work, and uh, so I, mig I migrated to that kind of work all within AT&T, so I never actually left the company. Right, <laughs> yeah, that is incredible. And, uh, uh, that's one of the things that I was wondering about. What is your recipe to really grow? And has it been changed? Has your strategy changed since you left? And is academia so different? It hasn't changed. I, I don't have much of a recipe. I believe that there's a certain amount of uh, following interesting opportunities. And I like to talk to, I like to talk to people and meet with them and learn about what they're doing. And through my whole career, that's always led to some interesting opportunities. So I've never been much of a planner when it comes to career. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's incredibly important, and it is for entrepreneurship. You probably ask about this as well, but to, to, to network, and not, not, not so much with a definite purpose in mind, but just right. to build a network of interesting people. And, mm -hmm. and that, for me, has always led to interesting career opportunities. So right. I, don't, I don't know if that's a recipe or not, but it's... Uh, but putting yourself out there and being open to other people's ideas mm -hmm. and questions yep. and being helpful to them certainly helps. Absolutely. And then you might, uh, you know, discover something that you could work together on. That's right. That's mm -hmm. right. Exactly right. And uh, so during that transition period, so you probably took a lot of courses in engineering now that was all in TNT mm -hmm. internal. And so how many years do you think it took you really to, from a psychologist to become an engineer? No. Some people take you know, years <laughs> of, of formal studying yeah. and in the, and so the work experience. So it's, it was an interesting time. I, I don't think folks, certainly young people, can't, can't quite comprehend what the Bell system was, but there was one telephone company entire country right? right and in fact you didn't own your phone you you rented your phone <laughs> from the from the company so and Bell Labs was of course the innovation engine that drove I mean drove this enterprise uh, there were lots of opportunities for education I mean AT&T invested in its people mm -hmm. and you know even half a day a week a day a week you could take courses and learn new things and so I always took advantage of that stuff and so I, I did a lot of uh, work in computer science, uh, took, took courses, took courses in, in systems engineering, 
Uh, there were lots of courses, of course, in the bell system and how the telephone network worked. Yeah. Um, so, and maybe this is part of the recipe that I, I, I claimed I don't have. Yes. Um, you know, sort of continuous learning. I mean, you have to be... If you're not learning something in a job, you probably should get another job. Does that sound crazy? I guess in this day and age, I mean, if it, for my parents, my, you know, in the Depression, that was a crazy idea. They, they worked because they needed money to eat. Mm -hmm. Maybe we're luckier now. We can, we can have yeah. jobs that are more fulfilling. And so for me, I've always looked for jobs where there was growth and, and learning and education. Mm -hmm. And... And it seems AT &T and the Bell system it. was perfect place yeah. for me. Yeah. So, uh, what do you think? What else did they really provide? How did they tackle the productivity question? Because a lot of companies, they think that we can really start investing into education when we're big enough, and then mm -hmm. when we're big enough, obviously there will be a lot of waste in terms of time, and like this lean startup, mm -hmm. especially the lean startup um, idea really doesn't leave a lot of room for like, oh, let me take this training course and then come and do work. It's more about, you know, contributing, constantly working, delivering. So how do you really balance that as a, a, a young company? And also if you're an employee, yeah. is there, like if you're stuck in an enterprise where the work and deliverables are all it's really like requiring and you can't take time off to do your learning. Is so I'm, I'm not sure I, I'm not sure I accept the premise of your question. I think the, the most learnings for mm -hmm. for me uh, came when I was doing entrepreneurial things. I mean, there's, a, okay. there's a learn by doing that, uh, that entrepreneurs have to just jump into and mm -hmm. and and indeed um, when I was doing my entrepreneurial venture, uh, New Voices, um, I had to take on all sorts of topics that I didn't know anything about. Right. I mean, uh, and so it was it, all part of the project and part of the goal you're yeah. trying to achieve. Yeah, mm -hmm. and so maybe the time the time frames were short because sometimes yeah. you had to learn a subject matter over the weekend because there was a meeting on Monday where you were expected to be pretty knowledgeable. <laughs> Um, so, uh, you know, necessity is often the mother of invention. So, uh, right. I, I think, I think, uh, so if, if a startup, if working in a startup is repetitive and it's a grind and you hate it, then you should quit. Mm -hmm. You know, but every, and especially for students, the startups I've worked with, people are always learning and growing and frankly it's part of the fun of it. Yes. And I just, um, you know, become the advocate of the devil and, mm. and have these questions because sure. a lot of employees in normal companies that would be like, oh, we're all about working, we're not learning. Mm -hmm. So that's because yeah. in their mind, learning has to be formal, mm -hmm. has to happen yeah. in classrooms, you get homework and things like that. But they don't realize that actually during the work, uh, you have to do your research, mm -hmm. you can learn from other people and you're already developing this knowledge that is also yeah. applicable and it becomes experience. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, the, the most uh, successful and accomplished entrepreneurs that I've met are entrepreneurs who have worked in an industry for two, three, five, ten years and, and in the course of that have really mastered that industry. They know the players, they know the competitors, they know the customers very well. They have a network of people all throughout the industry that they can call on. 
And yeah, none of that was formal education. None of it had homework and assignments and teachers in the classrooms, but they were learning the whole time and, and they developed that expertise, that mastery of an industry, which allowed them to look around and say, you know, there's a better way to do this, right? The way the industry does it is backwards. It's lazy, it's not up to date. I can do it, I can find a better way. Mm -hmm. and that becomes the basis for a, a great startup. That's true. So how did you stumble upon the idea for the text-to-speech? Uh, so at this point, I was working at the AT&T labs. This was after AT&T and, um, and uh, Lucent had, had split apart. Um, and it was very technology-driven. I, I was in the research area, and AT&T had developed this spectacular text-to-speech technology. It was... Uh, manifestly better than any of the technology. You're probably familiar with the, you know, the Stephen Hawking voice, which you know, sounds very robotic, and this wasn't mm -hmm. like that. Um, and in fact, um, it was customizable. You could, you could take a, and it was, you know, it was not an easy process, but you, you need mm -hmm. several hours of pre-recorded material, but your voice or mine, you could sit in a studio like this and record mm -hmm. a script and then that script could be turned into a voice that would sound very much like yours. Mm -hmm. So I stumbled into it because there was this marvelous technology which had uh, great commercial potential. And at that time, at the, at the very beginning, the corporation wasn't much interested in the technology. It was a little bit ahead of its time, and, mm -hmm. and it was hard to convince people within AT&T that they could use uh, text-to-speech uh, to automate some of uh, the, the functions they had. So. Mm -hmm. So in the labs, we said, well, we just can't let this killer technology <laughs> exactly. sit on a shelf. Right. So um, the, the leaders of the labs at that time, David Nagel and, and Doreen Yoakum, said, well, let's, why don't we start our own company? Let's spin one out. And mm -hmm. they gave us some latitude and some startup money, and we had, the, of course, the umbrella of all AT&T, so it was a nice opportunity. Well, that's great. So you had, uh, were they the leaders in this uh or the, in this endeavor, or were they also investors? The, how did you raise to be the leader of the company at the end? Um, a combination of wit, charm, grace, and just chutzpah. I mean, mm -hmm. in, in AT&T, and especially the labs at that time, if you were willing to put yourself out there and take a risk and take responsibilities and make some commitments, uh, Management was uh, was open to those kind of proposals, so there was a there was a process. There was there was there was money for these kind of spin out seed companies, and mm -hmm. I applied for it and put together a business plan and told them how we would make money with this technology, and right. they were convinced. Uh, so I guess the entrepreneurial spirit was always there within you, or was I it developed so. over time? I, I guess so. I mean, I I, I don't. I don't remember ever doing anything to develop it. So right. I mean, it's not a conscious thing, but I mean, I, I always liked, you know, business even as a kid. I mean, yeah. Like lemonade stands, selling t shirts and stuff. It's cool. yeah. I, mean, I, did, I did a lot of that sort of thing. I, I, I don't know. Okay. Yeah. And uh, were, were there certain subjects in psychology field where you were researching consumer behavior, for example? Or um, things no. specifically around <laughs> the commercial. Absolutely not. <laughs> okay. um, uh, my work is in psychology was uh, on word recognition. I studied uh, 
mental processes, mental machinery for that allows you to read. I mean, how do you mm -hmm. get meaning out of uh, printed words on a page? Um, I suppose I, I, my research and my background in psychology really taught you know more fundamental skills. I mean, I'm, I'm particularly good at dealing with uh, variable data, and I, I know how to deal with with study humans and study mm -hmm. people. Uh, Rather than you know chemistry or biology or even computer you know, coding, yeah. um, I'm very good at operationalizing difficult concepts, measuring things that, that aren't, aren't easy to measure, um, and dealing with kind of fuzzy, complicated problems. So those those sort of meta skills have served me very well as a, mm -hmm. in in life in general and in entrepreneurship right. in particular. Yeah. Also, um, you were talking about how you were working with all this. Um, uh, people who were uh, at the company at the time mm -hmm. and you had to convince them that okay. this certain thing will work. Uh, are there any strategies you can um, share with us that <laughs> can, like, how do you convince Maybe. people? Uh, how do you really even mm. make those conclusions that this, you know, text-to-speech will work in this particular area? Yeah, so uh, it's a combination of things. I mean, I, I think this is true for, and they were investors, right? I mean, these mm -hmm. were corporate officers who were investing the company's money. Um, I think there's a very, uh, I have a model for how you deal with investors, and I guess it developed even that early. They, they're two people at once. That is, they, they very much want you to succeed. So they want, they're hoping that you'll bring them the next great thing, right? And right. that your proposal will be the thing that makes the company great, makes them famous, makes a lot of money. And so they start up rooting for you. And so you've got to give them a reason to, to, to believe that, that this is really great. So you, mm -hmm. you've got to cast, cast the problem and the opportunity in big terms and make it appealing to them. And once they decide that this is really interesting to them, they change completely. And they change in the middle of your presentation. So then they go, they go from being cheerleaders and hopeful to being critics and... Uh, risk managers. Mm -hmm. So then, so the second part of your presentation has to anticipate all of their fears and <laughs> and, and speak to them, them, speak to mm -hmm. them, and show them that you've thought about this already and you've thought about it a lot, and that you haven't have a plan to deal with all of the obvious risks and all the things that could go wrong. Mm -hmm. And so you have to kind of craft that presentation strategy to get them really excited in the first place. And then convey to them, and it's often you know, in ten minutes. I mean, mm -hmm. you don't get a lot of time right. to to let them know that you have really thought about these things, and, and you you have anticipated the problems, and you have have a way to deal with them. Mm -hmm. That's a very interesting approach because what you usually um, hear from people is about like, oh, they're going to be criticizing me first. Mm -hmm. And then once I tell them the solution, they will be rooting. <laughs> I think it's stuff. the opposite. Yeah. I, it's very, <laughs> yeah, it's a very unique approach. And I think it, it, it does make sense because once they hear about something exciting, then the fear sets in. That's right. And then be like, oh, wait a minute, but what if this goes wrong, that goes wrong, etc. So they start doubting the idea in the first place. Yeah. And in fact, if they don't start, if they don't ask you all those questions about, you know, because that means they don't care, right? Mm -hmm. So if you, if you haven't gotten them in the first place, where, oh, where so now they're that starting means to worry, the pitch wasn't effective in the first you know, place. You, you didn't get them excited in the first place. You didn't hook them in the first place. You know, at okay. the very beginning, 
questions. So they don't care if it's, if it's risky or not. No, okay. So they actually, those critical questions tell you that the, the, you've, you've drawn them in and they're really interested. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's excellent. So, um, so how do you anticipate those questions? Do you sit you, down and brainstorm? Yeah, I mean, it, you, you, can, you can get a long way, you know, just sitting in a comfy chair with a glass of wine and say, you know, how many ways can this go wrong? You know, like, <laughs> you, know and, and, and because you get a very long list, typically. And, you know, the more you do it, the more you experience these things, then, you know, because there are standard ways, right? There's technical risk, there's market risk. You know, they, um, of course, it's really good to have colleagues, right, to have somebody who'll say, oh, yeah, let me look at it from a different perspective, and somebody who's, you know, who will think of things that you didn't think of. I mean, I have lots of colleagues like that here and, and elsewhere who can take a problem and give it a, you know, fresh perspective and, and, you know, think of those things you never thought of. That, that's hugely valuable. Right. right. Uh, so, um, when you pitch the, uh, the idea, uh, is this something that, for example, if you have investors or you have, uh, you know, family members who mm -hmm. will be your uh, first, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. you know, money, sure. the funders yeah, if yeah, you're yeah, in Davia, uh, how do you really, like, position it? Because with, especially with friends and family, we share everything, right? Mm -hmm. So if you start, because you're going to be in the mode where you're thinking out about the risks mm -hmm. and the doubts, mm -hmm. and they will also pick up on that. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, so, how do you eliminate, like, what do you do to get the right feedback and to also get the support? Because when you're pitching, you're always thinking, oh, this is the best idea, first mm -hmm. of all. Sure. And then you say, okay, I thought about all these problems mm -hmm. and I know how to respond to them. Right. So, you have this sort of a winner attitude and you're selling, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But when you're with the friends and family, you're very open and transparent about all the challenges that yes. it has too. So is there an advice how do you deal with your investors at the meeting? Like do you do do you open up to that level as well where you share the challenges as well? So friends or and family is very tricky. Um, I, I, I can't say I've always done this, but if I can I avoid friends and family. Thanksgiving can be a terribly awkward <laughs> meal sure. if, uh, if, if you and friends and family have gone on an investment that, uh, that failed completely. Sure. When I have done friends and family investment, I, I start, it, 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 I do it completely differently. I start with, I don't even want to talk to you unless you have money that you are willing to just throw out the window. I see. <laughs> so, so if you want to if you want to invest in this idea that I'm going to tell you about, you have to first assure me that the money you are willing to invest is money that you are completely ready to lose, hundred percent, never see it again. Mm -hmm. That's there's, a great there's some upside, but yeah. unless unless I don't want the rent money or Junior's college exactly, fund. Yeah. Um, this is only a flyer. This is uh, money that you can you can afford to lose. And if you can't commit to that, then we shouldn't uh, talk at all. Right. And I think it's a very um, uh, human way to do it because mm. you're showing the compassion and yeah. the consideration. Mm. Obviously, that the money that needs to be 
in, in you know, invested in the future yeah. and your basic necessities should not be right. uh, participating in the risky ventures. Because all the startups are risky ventures, oh, absolutely. essentially. Absolutely. Most of them fail. Yeah. So uh, as an investor, if you were to advise, would you advise the same thing? Don't invest your money unless they, and you know, unless you have surplus that you're willing yeah. to Yeah. I mean, if you're investing lose. in early stage startup, and that's really risky stuff, right? I mean, go buy, you know, if, if this is money that, that you can't afford to lose, you know, go buy a T-bill or put it in a mutual fund or, you know, buy a blue chip stock. This is, yeah, nobody should be investing in, in early stage startups with anything other than play money, right? Yeah. So in this um, industry, in the startup world, there's a notion of smart money mm. and the dumb money, so, mm -hmm. so, so to speak. But um, how do you, during the pitch, is it possible to spot the investor that can be a really good fit for your industry mm. because they know so much and they can help mm. you through, through their network, through their knowledge. So maybe the challenges that you surfaced, mm. maybe it's a no big brainer for yeah. that person. S smart money is, is really desirable, right? Um, dumb money can be okay too <laughs> because Investors require some care and feeding, and if you have a lot of them, you can spend a lot of time answering calls and uh, fielding their suggestions and explaining them you know, why you're doing what you're doing, and it can right. chew up a lot of your time. So mm -hmm. uh, it can be too much of a good thing. But, yeah. So you know, hands off can be really a, a blessing as yeah, well. Yeah, silent money is nice too, but mm -hmm. um, but you know that. There's no, there's no substitute for people who have real industry knowledge and have networks that you know that you can't reach into, especially in the customer side, right? People who can get you in front of customer prospects that, that you couldn't get to yourself. That, that's hugely valuable. That, mm -hmm. So an, an investor who's willing to spend that time and you know open up the Rolodex for you and, 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 and help move the company forward, is, that's huge. Yeah, it's critical. So when you were at Natural Voices, did you have NTNT's network and all the power? Did you, ha did you have yeah. access to it, or was it completely independent? No, so so being you know doing a startup within AT&T was very different in a couple of important ways. Yeah, so and one of which was the AT&T name, right? You could we could go to the sales force who could call on any company in the in the country, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's what they did, and say, oh, by the way. You might be interested in this leading edge technology that comes out of the Bell Labs, you know. Mm -hmm. Would you be willing to, you know, talk to these guys? So I, I could get access to, to big companies that startups couldn't get access to. And it was, uh, it was unfair. <laughs> I mean, the thing, of course, is you, you're part of AT&T. And so uh, people will laugh when I say this, but we never worried about cash flow. Right? There isn't, right. There's no, no startup in the world that doesn't worry. You didn't have to bootstrap. No, of course mm -hmm. not, because AT&T was a money machine. I mean, it was the cash was coming in all the time. And so if our company lost money for the first three, five years, you know, everybody was going to get paid, right? There was mm -hmm. no, there was no. So, and, and startup, you know, real entrepreneurs laugh at me because, you know, real entrepreneurs worry about cash flow every day, right? That's, right. that's the, uh, the most important thing for them. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't. I had, a, mm -hmm. I had commitments that I had made to the corporation, and. Nobody, there was never a chance of missing payroll you know, right. or, or people losing their jobs mm -hmm. if this 
if this entrepreneurial thing failed. So it's again. So it's the risk was low, but then the innovation was huge then still. Right. So that's why I feel like it's uh, still groundbreaking because of the uh, innovation part of mm -hmm. it. And obviously you making it uh, successful inside a, a big corporation mm -hmm. is also impressive because corporation, like getting ahead in corporation is also a hard, like hard task it even is. to get ahead in your career. Mm -hmm. So maybe there are some strategies you could share. How do you work inside a big corporation mm. to make yourself successful, your project, your team? Yeah. Well, there are, so, there are certainly some commonalities, uh, you know, some universal principles, right? And mm -hmm. uh, I would s start with networking. I mean, it, 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 is, it is, you can't underestimate the value of connecting with people, uh, mm -hmm. often without an agenda, right? I mean, just having lunch with people and say, well, you know, what are you doing these days, you know? All right. What's Can I going human on? to human? Just and you know, see what comes of it, and and building up that network of people who, at some point, you you might need, and and of course, being willing to to do something to contribute to their success is is key. But and again, AT and T was a marvelous place. Being at Bell Labs, I mean, I, I can I can literally remember being at Bell Labs and having a conversation with someone very early on in my career, and said, you know, this is a tough problem. Who is the world's expert in this area? Mm -hmm. And they'd say, oh, it's that guy down the hall. <laughs> you should just go talk to him. Yes, so it was good that you had lunch with him, you know, two weeks before, and you know, you knew him, and you saw him at the on the bocce courts or whatever. Mm -hmm. so, so networking is really important, and and it's important. So this is a little bit of a difference in in a corporation, of course, very hierarchical, right? Right. Um, so it's good to have champions and mentors. It's good to have people mm -hmm. higher up in the corporation who are willing to look out for you. But it was actually more important to network at your own level. I mean, make, make sure you knew your peers and they knew mm -hmm. you. And um, that, that turned out to be the real key. But mm -hmm. And how can they help um, when you're pulling teams? Uh, just because nobody, nobody, can do, you know, nobody can do this. Nobody can do these things on their own, right? You, mm -hmm. You'll guarantee that you'll need other resources. You'll need resources that you don't have, resources you don't control. Mm -hmm. And you have to be able to beg, borrow, and steal them. And so right. if, if you have a connection with a colleague who does work in this area, and then you can know them well enough that you can pick up the phone and say, hey, right. I need help. <laughs> can you help me? <laughs> and they say yes. Then, yeah. yeah. And I think it's an important uh, factor in collaboration. Mm -hmm. Like when you re you can connect human to human, then you have more trust sure. really to start collaborating. Yeah. And uh, um, in I, I think you're an amazing collaborator from the whole like career. Mm. And uh, I would wonder like what kind of tips would you share with us, and what are the things that you think will foster collaboration? And what other things would prevent mm. collaboration from happening? So, um, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about the concept of first things. You know, and networking is a great example. If if you are networking with a near term objective, right? So yeah. I want to go meet this person because I need something from them. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work very well, right? So, the, right. if if whereas if you are willing to network them by just talking with them and offering up some interesting conversation or letting them know what you're doing and finding out what they're doing with no expectation that anything will come of it, right. then good things come of it. Right? Right. So if you're focused on a, you know, a transaction and a near-term outcome, 
that doesn't work. If you're not focused mm -hmm. on a transaction or a near-term focus, then the transaction will happen. Okay. It's, it's, it's an odd kind of thing. And you just have to set aside time for it. And you, I'm, I'm sometimes able to convince myself I'm too busy to you know, go to lunch with <laughs> right. people or, you know, you know, go to tonic and have a beer after after work, right? And that stuff is important. It's uh, it's very useful. Right. As you say, it's, it's 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 investing in that human interaction, that that human side, mm -hmm. and not and 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 again, it's a little bit counterintuitive, but that's the best way to create the transactional business relationship is to right. start with the just the human to human interaction. Right. Because if you're interested in what other person is doing, and if you're interested in the person in general, and you generally like that person, right. it's much, so much easier to build trust and mm -hmm. start working on things. So because I was thinking about collaboration uh, for many years now, mm -hmm. and uh, I was thinking uh, about the sort of trade-offs. Do you first collaborate with people who you share your values and just generally like person to person or do you try to combine that plus the abilities in terms of their professional experience mm. because we need a lot of different uh, fields of expertise mm -hmm. when we are trying to you know pull a team and do a mm. project so you know you, sometimes you can you cannot have both right. pretty much because right. especially if you're uh, constricted to uh, entrepreneurial uh, journey at a mm -hmm. company, yeah, yeah. you might not have so many people who you share values with, but right. you might have the people who are good fit for your professional yeah. uh, goals. So, um, how how it, do you balance that over? So a couple of things occur to me. Mm -hmm. um, it's obviously easier to. To network with people who you have a lot in common with, right. you know, it just makes it just it's just easier. Um, but I think it's important to you know to invest that you know the psychic energy you know in, in you know getting beyond that circle. Right. Um, and the workplace can be good. I mean, and, and you're thrown in, into a lot of people that you work with that uh, you know don't share the same background with you. So it's, I mean, and even in our little office here, there are lots of very different people. I work with every day, and, and mm -hmm. that provides a nice opportunity to to to, to get up, get beyond folks I'm just kind of very flexibly comfortable with. Mm -hmm. In terms of collaboration, there is this kind of funny dichotomy where there has to be sort of a a, 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 a unity of purpose at a high level. Right. Right. If you're going to collaborate with people, you have to sort of agree about. Maybe even you know, if it's a, imagine a team setting, right? I mean, here's the overall goal, right? Here's what we're trying to accomplish. Here's the, here's the mission, you know, the, of the organization in, in very high level terms, and everybody has to be bought into that, right? So mm -hmm. at that so point, I, I'm not driven looking, by the purpose. I'm not mm -hmm. looking for a lot of diversity there, right? I want real unity about the the goal, mm -hmm. but then the activities and the approaches and the things underneath it, then the more perspectives and different abilities and, and, and strengths, uh, then then the diversity below it is really valuable. Right? You want people with different skills and different perspectives and different ideas. And of course, implicit in this is you have to have a way to disagree constructively. Right? Mm -hmm. somebody, yeah. somebody wants to you know wants to go this way, somebody wants to go that way. You have to be able to talk it through and and 
hit upon a solution. But but boy, it had, you want as many you know possible solutions surfaced as you can. Right. right. Yes, and especially uh, when you're trying to pull a team together, and before even you have success, if you start thinking about who is contributing and uh, what are their, uh, what is the motivation of each individual. Mm -hmm. So if there isn't any uh, uh, overall purpose, mm -hmm. then the motivations can be so different right. that will be very unmanageable. That's right, yeah, mm -hmm. and in, at, at best inefficient, right? Right, and so for inefficiency, like I would um, ask a question about virtual collaboration. Mm. Because right now it's something that internet brings us and mm -hmm. you can connect to literally anyone in the world given that you're also interesting to mm -hmm. that person. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so do you recommend doing things like that or would you really stick to the people you really know and especially locally because mm -hmm. then you have more chances of connecting face-to-face uh, -face and doing things together in a sense where you can really just meet and start doing mm. things. And, and I, it's mostly the, you know, one circumstance is when you have a startup and the second one may be, uh, you know, scientific research, for example, and yeah. those are two different cases. Sure. I, I don't recommend virtual collaboration. Um, I, I, I always prefer face-to-face. -face. I'd like to be in the same room with people if I can. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, that's just not always possible, and there's there are just considerations of some just too expensive, and you know, time is important, and so the travel around DC, right? <laughs> just getting into yeah. downtown makes it makes virtual uh, attractive. So I, I, but it's more than a, a necessary evil. I think it's a, it's a net plus. I mean, there are the the ex, the opportunities that you get to talk to more people and do it more. Efficiently, less time, less money, mm -hmm. makes makes virtual collaboration a necessity these days. Yes. I don't see how you can how you can get around it. And do a mm -hmm. fair amount. I mean, even even in our, our work here, um, I would say half the meetings I take are online or conference calls mm -hmm. or WebEx sort of things. Right, and are they um, usually with the people you already established the relationship and you know? Uh, well, that's right. So, it's uh, it, like, have you met any people just through online, and it led to some kind of a work together, or? Yeah, I think so. Because yeah. that's a, a very common place right now when you're connecting on social media mm -hmm. with people, and then you know it, it leads to certain. Yeah, I mean, together. obviously, it works best the other way around. Right. right Once you've got course. a relationship with folks that you've established over some time, then virtual interactions can be really efficient. Mm -hmm. But I, I have seen it go the other way, and I've seen you know virtual re relationships turn into you know more rich interpersonal relations. Not as common though. Yeah, but what do you advise to students uh, who are starting up uh, their project? And because uh, it's very common at the university to start things together with their classmates mm. or with their friends, where. There is a purpose, but most likely they're starting it together because, uh, you know, they've been mm. together, they like each other, sure. and they get into this new thing, and even if they don't have complementary uh, skill sets, right. do you advise people to do that? So for 
college students who are more interested in entrepreneurship, I advise them to do whatever they can, but to, to do something mm -hmm. rather than nothing. So very few of the college startups that we see mm -hmm. are going to turn into real companies. And even the ones that do are going to go through three, four, half dozen pivots along the way. Mm -hmm. So I'm not too adamant about following an optimal process. I, I'd, much more rather, I'd much rather see a student just get in there and try it out, get the experience. Because mm -hmm. I know that I mean, without independent of the, of the student, I know it's going to fall apart two or three times, right? Right. So the the more experience they get, the more they they, they try it out, the better. And I don't know that I, I, I would avoid the opportunity, avoid the occasion to try to talk them out of starting a startup because it didn't have Not all the, the right writing right ingredients. Mm -hmm. Just, I mean, it, for almost all the student startups I see, the thing they need the most is to kind of is just to jump in with both feet. You know, you forget the fear, go. Accept the fact that it's going to be trial and error, mm. and that you're going to skin your skin your knee and bruise your shins, but just get mm. in there and do it. Yes. Take your lumps. Uh, what about people who are leaving their corporate jobs and uh, well, are developing a side hustle where they're trying to make that into more of a full time rather than well, that's that, you know, that's that's a difference between college students who have. Mm -hmm. Remarkably little responsibility, right? right. They, have to, they have to keep their grade point I think it, up it, it's really easy. So, so they much easier to be an entrepreneur when you're in college. Oh, so absolutely, take that risk, yeah. right? Right. And also um, the reputational risk, because if they fail their students, and if you're leaving your job and then failing, it's it's a bit more tall yeah, on oh, both sides, financially and emotionally. You make a very good point. In fact, the reputational risk for, for students is almost zero. I've, I've talked to a number of campus recruiters mm -hmm. who come here and they say, if they see on a resume that a student has, has done a startup or been in the new venture competition and crashed and burned, mm -hmm. they love that. <laughs> That's yeah. good. They, they, you know, they've taken the initiative, they've tried some entrepreneurship, they, I'm sure they've learned stuff along the way, right. they've learned how to innovate, and if it didn't work, so what? Those skills can, can transfer into our company just fine. So there's almost yeah. no reputational risk yeah. for a student. It's actually an advantage because it shows you're a risk taker, right. action oriented, right. curious. It's a it's yeah. a big plus on a resume. Uh, if you know now, if you have a, you know a, a spouse and a dog and two point two kids and a mortgage and a house, mm -hmm. nah, you have to be a little more careful about uh, about what you do, and then you do want to be a little more thoughtful and. Right. Follow the best practices more strictly than mm -hmm. than a student needs to. Yeah. So, um, what is your recommendation for people like that? How to get started? Um, if they have an idea, especially if the idea is outside of their industry. Outside of their industry, I would say be cautious. Yes. You, the the successful entrepreneurs that I know, by and large, are experts in their industry. And I don't mean like published papers, but I mean they've worked in an industry for three, five, ten years. Mm -hmm. They really know the industry well. They know the customers. They know the competitors. They know where value is created in the industry. They have a great network. Right? Mm -hmm. They know everybody that they can call on. Um, 
And so really, really being the master of that subject matter, that area, is, is vitally important. So mm -hmm. be careful about uh, you know, trying to be an entrepreneur outside of your industry. I much prefer that model where you say, somebody who says, I've been in this industry for five years, and I can do it better. Mm -hmm. I see how things work. I know what works and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. I can do another startup that doesn't have these problems, fixes these problems. Right. That's the kind of entrepreneur I, I find attractive. Yeah. So if you want to do something, you have an idea, you have a passion for something outside of industry, do your homework. Start to start to talk to people. And you know, it's a, a variation on the networking <laughs> theme that we've we've right. hit upon quite a bit already. Get out and talk to people. Get out and meet people in that industry. Mm -hmm. Meet the customers. That's a great place to start. Right? Yeah. You can talk to those customers. What's working? What's not? I mean, you know, how does this? In, how does the current? How do the current products and services create value for you? How do they solve your problems? Mm -hmm. Is there you know? Is there a better way? Right. I mean, this is very similar to what you've experienced at AT&T, mm -hmm. where you were in the industry for such a long time that you saw the opportunity sure. and you went for it. So what were the, the first fields of application for text-to-speech, going back <laughs> into history? First applications were, uh, were weather forecasting, so people, uh, weather services that, that produced a forecast every 15 or 20 minutes and they wanted to... Uh, broadcast that uh, uh, around the country mm -hmm. and so they would type up the weather forecast and then they would have somebody read it and, mm -hmm. and it was time consuming and expensive and we could cut out that human that human's uh, mm -hmm. uh, recorded voice uh, made it just 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 magical uh, then we started into, into customer service and it was very easy to get into uh, customer service applications where um, people's records were pulled up and they could could read those records because the text was already there, mm -hmm. um, and that that was actually the once we started to do that, that actually was the the, the inflection point for for the company because mm -hmm. now there were these big databases of um, material that could be delivered to somebody over the phone um, mm -hmm. uh, that was already in place and just had to be had to be translated from the text to the speech. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, that's exciting because even nowadays, like GPS and mm -hmm. all these things that we know yeah. of wouldn't be possible without yeah. that technology. We had a great, and, and we never actually productized this, but we had this great email reader, so you could sit in your car and drive up and down the New Jersey Turnpike and, and say, okay, read, read my email to me. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, it's unstructured speech. It's not something you could pre-record, but it would go through it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that, 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 that was a great awesome. application. Yeah, so how did you transition from that uh, exciting technology job uh, into uh, academia? So, of course, I started out in academia, mm -hmm. and um, the, the, the new ventures, uh, the, new, the Natural Voices venture, uh, when it started out, we, we took the technology to the, the, the main business mm -hmm. units and said, look, this is how you should be doing your customer service. This is mm -hmm. how you should be... Uh, should be dealing with calls that come in from call centers, and no, they weren't very interested. And then, as we started to to sell this product mm -hmm. to other companies, then we were credible, and they said, "Oh, wait a minute, we're we're, we're running into you in the marketplace, right? We're trying to sell uh, solutions to our big corporate customers, and they're saying, oh, I wish I wish I had this text-to-speech stuff.'" Mm -hmm. Text to speech stuff. Where are you where are you getting that? Well, it's these guys from the labs that have been been talking to us. So, so what happened eventually is it, it, is the, the 
the success in the marketplace convinced the corporation that they wanted to take this technology back into AT&T. And so that essentially reabsorbed the, the, the startup into the corporation, which was fine. It was a, it was a, it was a big success. Mm -hmm. um, at that point, uh, AT&T was going through a lot of upheaval. They were, the, the, the company had been divested, and, and so and I was ready to, uh, yeah, not quite at retirement age, but um, so I left the company and went back to academia. And I went back to uh, mm -hmm. business school in New Jersey and became the dean of the school of the school of it was then called the technology management. Now it's called the school of business at, at right. Stevens Institute. Okay, great. And uh, it was, uh, I'm sure, a very interesting transition because now you get to to teach uh, others mm -hmm. uh, how to manage and and do. Uh, interesting IT projects and uh, you know develop themselves yeah, in business well, and technology. Sure, I mean, Stevens is a wonderful place. It's a it's a primarily an engineering school, but it has a has a, a very good business school, and the students and faculty are very entrepreneurial, mm -hmm. and so it was a nice place for me because I could interact with uh, engineers and scientists and, and some creatives. There was a there was a uh, a school of uh, college of of arts. And sciences as well, so it was it was a wonderful place to bring entrepreneurial skills and experiences to a, uh, just you know a, a kind of a, a fertile audience, good good place. So I enjoyed mm -hmm. that very much. Right. So I guess it, it kind of became your uh, mission to after you've accomplished the big success at the corporate to spread that knowledge in the academia world because now you're in DC and. Uh, you yeah. moved from New Jersey here specifically for you, that purpose. You give me you give me more credit for, for having <laughs> having a mission and a vision. I, I typically don't. I, uh, uh, you go with the flow more like. Yeah, I, and, and I like to talk to interesting people, and I like to connect, and that's mm -hmm. always provided an inter another opportunity for me. I've never had to plan my career very much. Well, I'm um, just assuming probably because once you. Um, have a successful startup and it gets used by a big corporation, mm -hmm. I'm sure you don't have to work a day after that. <laughs> like, in terms of, you could just retire. Or so I did retire. Uh, my wife and I left uh, New Jersey um, at, at, the, at the arrival of the first grandchild. Mm -hmm. And so uh, my wife explained to me that uh, life is too short to be living in New Jersey when your kids and your grandchildren live in, in Washington. So mm -hmm. we were both ready to retire, and we did, and we moved to D.C. Okay. Nobody retires to D.C., <laughs> but we did. We retired to D.C. Well, you just follow usually where your passions are, and at the time, your grandchildren, you know, spark that Absolutely. passion Absolutely. and interest. Yeah. Um, so I was retired, and I was terrible at it, and driving my wife crazy and she threw me out of the house and so I went back to what I knew and started looking around for universities that were involved in entrepreneurship and when you google you know entrepreneurship in DC GW mm -hmm. pops to the top of the list quite All rightly right. and so I started what I always do started networking went to events and volunteered and worked with some startup teams worked with the, as a mentor and then served as a judge in the new venture competition and uh, eventually, the the person who had started the new venture competition decided he wanted to retire, and 
came to me and said, gee, why don't you, why don't you do this? Mm -hmm. Would you like to get involved in this? And, uh, sure. Mm -hmm. So I started doing it part-time, and then part-time became full-time, and we added some things and kind of grew the competition and added mm -hmm. some other things. And yeah, I, I was very happy to see it because I'm a GW alumna, mm -hmm. and uh, when I left uh, GW, the entrepreneurship wasn't very developed, I mm -hmm. think. And uh, right now, I'm just amazed to see all these uh, activities and competitions oh, yeah. and the make office for the students where they can collaborate oh, and yeah. they can work on their project. It's amazing. Yep. And uh, surely, I'm very happy that you retired and moved to <laughs> Well, thank you. Yeah. It's a great time to be a student at GW. It's a great time to follow an entrepreneurial um, bug and if you have an idea for a startup, GW is a great place for a student to work. There's tons of resources, tons of expertise. We have mentors and residents who are here uh, every day during the week. We have over 300 mentors in our online mentorship community, the Innovation Exchange. We run a summer accelerator now where we take the best teams from the New Venture Competition and give them an immersive experience over nine weeks to launch their company. Uh, the new venture competition at GW last year had over 420 participants on 216 teams. It's a, it's a, it's a big event and a great student experience. They learn a lot. Yeah. How many people out of 10 end up having a startup because they went through a course, let's say, in entrepreneurship or innovation? Um, so the, 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 the teams that come into the competition some of them come through a course. Um, probably 10, maybe even 20% are coming through a course. There are excellent courses in the School of Business. There's a, um, in, the, in the Corcoran School, um, in, in C's, there are courses that, 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 that do feed into the new venture competition, and those work very well. But I think it's mostly maybe 20%. I think 80% do not. Mm -hmm. So do those are the people who just you know, hear about the competition and mm -hmm. they happen to be students, they happen to have mm -hmm. an idea and they want to do it. Mm -hmm. In some sense, we're in the right place at the right time. I mean, students mm -hmm. today all have an idea. <laughs> they all have something that they want to change or fix or do yeah. better or transform. And not all of them are great ideas, yeah. but they all have an idea, mm -hmm. or two or three. And the ones that are willing to act on it and put some time and effort into it get a lot out of our, our programs. Mm -hmm. And there are programs, um, I'm aware that there are also bachelor programs, the graduate oh, yeah. degree programs, Absolutely. so they run on all levels. Absolutely. And mm -hmm. uh, no, would you say that most of the faculty mm -hmm. are people who have their own uh, businesses before and they would teach with experience? So the faculty who teach entrepreneurship are often entrepreneurs themselves, but not always. Mm -hmm. um, see, our programs are all extracurricular, so we provide a complement to the academic program. So they, they're, and they're, as I say, there are really great courses at GW for credit mm -hmm. um, that students can take, and they, and the best combination, frankly, is a student who's who's studying. Um, the theory and practice in the classroom who then comes and implements it, tries it out in our competition. Right. So we, I, the, I, and we have a great relationship with the faculty here. I, I, I love the way we collaborate with the, the, the faculty at GW. They mm -hmm. could, I think we provide something that, that, that really complements the, the great teaching they get in the classroom.
Yeah, I, I think it's um, especially true nowadays because when you learn by doing, you achieve much more than just learning by yeah, learning. Yeah, it's an interplay. Absolutely. You need yeah. both. Yeah. So, uh, you know, understanding the theory and understanding what's gone before and, and having a comprehensive view is really, it, it, it's, we don't teach that. I mean, that, that's, that's uh, much more essential and within when you, when you can then try it out in mm -hmm. the real world and then you know, test the theory. That, that's, that's when you get a lot of learning. Right, yeah. So, in your opinion, like, what are the things that institutions or organizations mm -hmm. can do to foster collaboration in kids? Because obviously mm -hmm. the competitions, mm -hmm. they really do um, strike the, mm -hmm. the competitiveness in the kids yeah. who want to achieve more and do more. But um, what are the things that you, can be, you think can be done to make them to collaborate more in mm -hmm. their... So it's interesting, I, we don't see a lot of um, destructive competition. So they compete in the competition they want to do well. Mm -hmm. They don't, students rarely, I can't think of an instance where a student you know, told me that they were competing against other students. I mean, they compete yeah. to have the best venture they can, to get the highest marks they can, have the judges really love what they're doing. Right. They, don't, they don't see themselves as competing with the other folks. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'm not too worried about that. In terms of fostering collaboration on campus, uh, a big part of that is a physical space. So we're here in the MAKE offices at 2010. Um, having a place where students from different schools and different disciplines can gather and meet and uh, network. You know, right. And just where you know, those collisions can happen, serendipity, when some student is getting a cup of coffee and talks to another student and says, oh, I'm in the business school and I'm studying finance, and you know, the student says, I'm in the engineering school and I'm studying computer science. Yeah. And the business person says, I really need a computer science person for my idea. And the computer science says, I really need a business person for my idea. Those kind yeah. of collaborations that happen in a central space like this are really, really important. Yeah, and also it can have a good follow-up because mm -hmm. they have a space to meet, yep. they have space to work together, yes. and obviously the competition to exactly. enter. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So I, I'm sure you've seen so many entrepreneurs in your life. Mm -hmm. um, would you describe a certain profile? Oh. That, you know, that we are all different as mm -hmm. people, but are there certain traits, do you think, that... Yeah, there are some, but I, I, I think the differences are more interesting than the commonalities. I, I, I don't know if there's a formula. In fact, I, I'm, I'm confident there's not a formula. But there are some things they all have in common. They're, they're hardworking. I right. never I never saw a successful entrepreneur that wasn't willing to work hard. That That's that's a necessary. That's that's table stakes. Um, they listen well. They care about customers. Um, they have good judgment. They have some kind of insight. I mean, they, they, they know how to digest feedback and make the most of it. And yeah, many contradictions, right? So they have real passion, and they, and they drive forward, and they, you know, they, but they also know when to to, to veer off and turn and change direction, right? They, mm -hmm. So somehow they can they can separate the the important feedback from the unimportant feedback. You know, right. like when your when your mother tells you your idea is great, <laughs> my mother's always going to tell you your ideas are great, right? So you got to know yes. how to discount that, right? Mm -hmm. But when a customer tells you your idea is great, well, then that's important, right? You gotta, you gotta listen to that. So they, they have that kind of judgment to know how to weigh the data they have. And yeah. 
Uh, I am very happy uh, to have had such an amazing conversation with you today. Same here. Um, I wish you many more students at the entrepreneurship program, and uh, I wish to see many more interesting projects, competitions, and things that GW can make for the local entrepreneurs in DC. Great. Thank you well, so thank much. Thank you for having me. It was a nice opportunity. I appreciate it.